open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we're winding our study down of the pastoral epistles and this last of the pastorals. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and tonight we begin verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Underlying the thought that is expressed in the opening paragraph of chapter 4 is actually the opening line of chapter 3. Paul says, but realize this, then in the last days, difficult times will come. And you recall then Paul moved on to a list of sins that categorize those difficult times. You see, he had told Timothy not only did he need to preach the word, but he needed to do it in a certain manner. Not only did he need to minister, but he needed to minister well, and he needed to minister in love. And then he's up front with Timothy and tells him it's not going to be easy. Well, that word, that opening line in chapter 3 is actually what Paul is, re- is coming back to in chapter 4 once again. The phrase, latter days, even though it can refer to the, the clock ticking toward the end of the church age, here are the words in Second Timothy chapter 3 and then on into chapter 4. These words refer to the church age in its entirety. And one of the ways that we can validate that is that, that Paul addresses situations for Timothy to take care of right now. He's in the latter days right now, even though it was in the very beginning of the church age. So in some, in some contexts, the word latter days means the last portion of the church age. In other contexts, the term latter days means the entirety of the church age. Yes, it is true that apostasy will increase as the church age unfolds and it comes to a conclusion. But the influence of false teachers is there right from the beginning. Though the background of chapters 3 and 4 is the same, there's a difference in Paul's approach in these two chapters. In chapter 3, Paul stresses that Timothy confronted with the developing opposition to the truth that was taking place even in the beginning, even that short time after Paul had personally been there and ministered, Timothy must abide in true doctrine. That same word abide we saw in John chapter 15. Uh, the word meno, M-E-N-O, it means to, to stay or remain. Uh, right now we're abiding in this room. Now, if, if you took this room as the, the sphere of truth, the sphere of doctrine, Paul tells Timothy, we must abide in this sphere of doctrine. We must remain here. We must live here. We must reside here. But in chapter 4, Paul brings into prominence Timothy's duty to proclaim this doctrine. Chapter 3, he was to abide in it. He was to remain in it himself personally. And then in chapter 4, the responsibility is given him to proclaim this truth. Let me stop here and just remind you, the pastoral epistles are called the pastoral epistles um, in, in some circles because people believe that they, they give instruction and information to people who are going to be pastors. And I've got to tell you, I, I, I love the pastoral epistles. Whenever I have a rough day or a rough week or a rough month or a rough season, I go back to the pastoral epistles and I read these for my devotional reading. It, it reminds me 
what my duties are, what my responsibilities are, and for whom I work. However, the pastoral epistles were not called the pastoral epistles until the 1800s. The, the, the pastoral epistles have a lot of information in here about those who are going to be pastors, but they have a lot of information about all of us. All of us are in ministry in one form or another. We might not think of ourselves in formal ministry, but you all have a ministry, whether it's taking care of your grandchildren, or whether it's ministering at the, at the CPC, or whether it's volunteering someone else, or whether it's, whether it's working at the nursery at church, or helping with the setup at church. All of us have a ministry, and, all, and those ministries have to be performed as unto the Lord. They have to be performed in the sphere of truth, and then there's a proclamation of truth that's, that's there, whether it's verbally or whether it's with your life. So pastoral epistles are not just for pastors, although tonight it's going to seem like it. But the pastoral epistles are for the entirety of the church. So chapter 4 brings into prominence Timothy's duty to proclaim the doctrine of the word of God. Let him speak out while people are still willing to listen. Interesting message for this first century, isn't it? Because we, we think that today. We think there's a sense of urgency in ministry today that we need to get the word out there while people are still willing to listen. It seems as though every generation goes through that. Every generation of those who are called to proclaim the word of God are, are apparently faced with that because people will not always be willing to listen, whether it's in Paul's day or the whether it is in our own. And chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Paul begins this paragraph, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, by creating a scene of solemnity, against which Timothy is to understand the charge that he's going to give in verses 2 and following. Don't forget that it's on the eve of Paul's death that he writes this. I don't know about you, I love studying last words of people. I'm always interested in what people's final words are. It may be a bit morbid. I'm always interested in reading the paper about those who are executed up in Huntsville. I want to know what their last words are. I'd like to know how many of them re repented, trusted Jesus Christ, and, and, and are going to spend eternity in heaven, and how many go to their deaths defiantly. But the last words of people like Stonewall Jackson... Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. I, those, those are some of my favorite last words. If I have the opportunity, that's what I'm going to say. But I don't, you never know. <laughs> you never know if that's the opportunity that you're going to have. Actually, he said not too long before that, I don't want to get too far off the track, but not too long before, about an hour before he said that, when his wife, or two or three hours before he said that, when his wife came in to tell him that that was going to be his last day on earth, she awakened him and and he, he, she said, well, uh, Thomas, he, she didn't call him Stonewall. Was, Thomas, uh, the doctors tell us that, that this is probably going to be your final day. And he said, well, what day is this? And she said, well, it's Sunday, Thomas. And he said, Sunday, good. I always wanted to die on the Lord's day. So that's, uh, but anyway, the point being, we, we do pay a lot of attention to last words, don't we? And these are... Paul's last words. This is the last shot that he's probably going to get to. Now, he's going to call for Timothy to come. So there's a possibility, although we can't prove it, that, that Timothy made it to Rome before he died. But just in case, Paul is pouring his heart out. He is pouring everything that he's got left in him out to this young associate who's going to take over what he was doing, at least with the church at Ephesus. You know, if you, were, if you knew you had just had a short time to live, I, I don't know how you, you would know that for sure, but if you were, if you were in that position... And people were called to your hospital um, 
hospital room and you had all the kids and the grandkids and your wife and maybe your parents or whoever, whoever were your, your friends, your loved ones, you know, chances are you're not going to be talking about the weather. You're not going to be talking about the Astros or the, the Texans or, or even the construction on the Katy Freeway. If you know those are going to be the final things you say, you're going to say something that's really significant to you. I preface that because I want you to preface my remarks by saying that because I want you to see how solemn this charge is. Paul gets really, as if he wasn't already serious enough, he gets really, really serious and solemn as he closes this out. I solemnly charge you. It's on the eve of his death. He delivers this final and probably the most solemn and serious charge he gives in anywhere in his epistles. He directs Timothy's attention to God, or in this case, God the Father, and to Christ Jesus, in whose presence this solemn charge is issued and received. It's almost, almost very much like an oath. I want you to take this oath, Timothy, in the presence of these witnesses. In fact, he places him under oath to obey the charge. It is to God and his anointed Savior, Jesus Christ, that Timothy will have to render an account. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living, and the dead. We must never forget that. It's in, in this text, the, the Greek text actually says, Jesus Christ, who is about to judge the living and the dead. And all the New American Standard and most translations just, just uh, use the word is. I think for a flow in translation, we need to consider the, the specifics of what the original language said. Because it lets us, it lets us in on the idea that this judgment is imminent. And not meaning, meaning it's not necessarily soon, but that it's a sure thing that it's going to happen. And for each of us, there doesn't necessarily have to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years before it happens. We could, we could finish our life out tonight and end up being with the Lord before the evening's over. I, I read an interview today with the, with a gentleman that used to be the CIA bureau chief in charge of hunting down bin Laden. And during this interview, he, he said that the next great catastrophic terrorist event in the United States was going to have to be, in his view, much larger than 9-11, because that's how Al-Qaeda works. They're not going to just set off a few car bombs at this point. That would actually be a step down for them. So in order to make a splash, in his view, uh, he's retired now, that's why he can write these books, that it had to be a much bigger splash. And then he was asked, where do you think the bigger splash is going to be? And he said the number one spot that, that is, is considered to be the number one spot on the hit list is about 15 miles from here, over in the Houston Ship Channel, which I know many of you work in that particular location, at least several of you. Quite, I'm looking at three of you right now. You know, we have no guarantees on the future. Jesus Christ holds history in the palm of his hand. If, if he chooses to let that happen, then not only you three guys, and your, but a lot of us that, that live in that vicinity may, may not be around tomorrow. The fact is that the judgment of Jesus Christ is an imminent event. It's a sure thing. That's why Paul puts it, who is about to judge. It's not a, not a maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not. It's when it will happen. Now, I didn't mean to say that to, to shock you, but I mean, if you don't hear it now, you're going to hear it on the radio tomorrow. It's, it's a reality. This is the world that we live in. But then, then we've had wrecks out in front of the church with people turning in to come to church, too. And unfortunately, they didn't die from the accident. You remember that a few years back? I think it was Miss Hunt that had that particular accident. But, but you never know, and we need to keep this in mind with every single thing that we do. We need to measure it against the fact that 
we've been given a certain amount of time. We've been given a certain amount of resources. And Jesus Christ will evaluate us. This is the principle we see in Luke 19, Matthew 25, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There will be an evaluation for believers. Not an evaluation as to whether you keep your salvation or not. That's not it. But were you faithful with what I gave you? Whatever that was, were you faithful? So I'm going I'm to translate it the, the way I believe it should be, and, I, and I'm not putting translations down. I'm just trying to, to get a little bit more specific and try to help this audience understand it better. Who is about to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. It is a certainty that is implied in the phrase, is about to. All of us, no matter what our ministry, and as I said before, all of us are in ministry, will one day give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ himself as to what we did with that ministry. This is a sobering thought. We will be held responsible and accountable. In, in some academic settings now, there's no tests. In some academic settings, there's, there's really not a lot of papers. You just come, you sit down, you audit the class, so to speak. But there's no, there's no accounting for you at the end to see if you paid any attention at all. Well, the judgment seat of Christ is not like that. Jesus Christ will give an accounting, and it's a sobering thing. And Paul brings that to Timothy's mind with one of the last things he ever tells him. Isn't that important? Very important. Very significant. By, by his appearing in his kingdom. Now, the last phrase doesn't refer to the judgment seat of Christ. The last phrase refers to the second coming. That phrase that we've talked about in the prophets so many times, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day that begins with the most incredible judgment that the world has ever seen and ends with the most incredible blessing that the world has ever seen. We call that the second advent. We'll see that too, demonstrating his power and his right to judge and evaluate not only believers but unbelievers as well. So the first verse is a very sobering and very serious challenge. In verse 2, it's by means of five very terse imperatives or commands, and for those of you that are interested, they're, they're commands in the aorist tense in Greek. The content of the charge is now presented, and is presented primarily, not exclusively, this is where we mess up sometimes, it, but it's printed, presented primarily in the first phrase. And then the other four imperatives, the other four commands, help govern and explain the first one. The first command is, preach the word. This is the basic command to the other four imperatives. It means to proclaim the word before the public. Now, there is some weakness associated with the word preach today. So much so that many in pastoral ministries, shy away from it. I admit that I seldom use the title preacher to describe myself when I'm introducing myself to someone else. I'll say I'm a pastor, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm the pastor of Pine Valley Bible Church, something, but I, I don't usually say I'm a preacher. And it's because in, in our culture today, and probably not just our culture, but maybe a generation or two back, the idea has become fairly weak and never forget, when we went from the school, before we came over here, one of the, the school over in Deer Park, one of the potential stopping places on the way was another institution of higher learning that had a large, uh, large auditorium that, that for years they had set there, they were going to let us use, and, and I'd always kind of shied away from it. I went one day, cap in hand, over to this school and talked to the president of the school who was, um, it wasn't being real nice that day because I had turned him down before. Now, now I was coming needing him. 
And so I never forget what he did, though. He, he pulled me aside and had some faculty members there. And he said, this is Bruce Baumgartner, the preacher boy over at Bay Area Bible Church. That's what we were called at the time. And I could have slapped him silly. If, <laughs> if that preacher boy wasn't supposed to not be pugnacious. So I, I, uh, I don't care for that. In fact, if you like Westerns like I do, my favorite channel on the, on cable is either ESPN or 403 on, on Comcast, the one that's got the Westerns on it. And you point to me a Western that's got a real strong character as a preacher, and I would love to see that movie, because typically they're the weakest person in town, uh, typically. So, uh, nevertheless, the command is preach the word. Keruxon ton logon. Preach the word. Proclaim the word. This is the primary, and I want to stress this, the primary responsibility for the one that is involved in pastoral ministry. It is primary. It should take priority. But I also want to stress, it doesn't stand alone. Just because it's the first thing mentioned, and the primary thing mentioned in this passage, it does not stand alone. And I don't want to preach this passage without... See, I can use the word. I don't want to preach it without... Reminding you that there are other responsibilities of the pastor that have been noted in other studies. You know, shepherding the flock involves feeding the flock, preaching the word, teaching the word. But it also involves comforting, counseling, protecting, and leading the flock, among other things. Here, Paul, though, is speaking in terms of priority. In our culture today, I think we have the preach part down, the keruxon part. But I wonder if we have the word part down. You know what I mean? I think we have the preach part, but whether we have the whole phrase down, I think is really up for debate. The, the preach the word part, meaning the word of God, that is certainly up for debate. You listen to some of America's best-known preachers, and frankly, you strain to hear anything of the word of God. I hear the word of Norman Vincent Peale. I hear the word of Sigmund Freud. But there is little of the word of God. Os Guinness notes in his very fine book, Prophetic Untimeliness, he says, Evangelicals were once known as the serious people. It is sad to note that today many evangelicals are the most superficial of religious believers, lightweight in thinking, gossamer thin in theology, and avid proponents of spirituality light in terms of preaching and responses to life. There are exceptions, of course, and there are a lot more men out there proclaiming the message of God with clarity and with conviction than many of us might think. But sadly, it's not the norm anymore. I've seen this here in America, and I've also seen it in every country that I've ever visited doing pastor's conferences. In Poland, a year or so, a little bit more than a year ago, it was so pronounced there, this the sweetness of not preaching the word. It was so pronounced. I, I attended one particular service. I was supposed to preach that service. When I got there, the, the pastor said, well, what we, we don't want you to, to preach us a Bible lesson. That's not what we're about here. We want you to give your testimony. I said through the translator, I said, I came 5,000 miles uh, to preach the word. I didn't come 5,000 miles just to give my testimony. Nevertheless, he said that's what he wanted. So I said, okay, how much time do I have? He said, well, take 15, 20 minutes if you want to give it. 
I said, great. So I sat through the service. The service lasted a total of an hour and one, one and one-half hours, hour and a half. There were, and I counted, nine songs, four separate praying times where there was congregational prayer, where many, like we had today already, where many people would stand up and pray. There were two other testimonies. I think there was a short scripture reading, and then there was a sermon by the pastor, the one that wanted me to do the, the um, testimony. There was another testimony besides mine. The sermon lasted four minutes. Four minutes. And so when I got up, I was the one that was going to close the service with my testimony. And when I got up to do my testimony, my testimony was about the importance of preaching the word. <laughs> I mean it. I didn't come 5,000 miles to, to tell them, you know, that I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and have fine parents and, and all that stuff. I mean, I do, but, but that's not what I came 5,000 miles to tell them. And I told him, too, I said, as a congregation, this is through the translator, I said, as a congregation, you guys need to not accept anything less than the preaching of the Word of God, because that's where the power is. The power is not in, in all these other things that we've done today. Now, you might think I'm insane, and it's true, I haven't been invited back to Poland. Pretty much everywhere else I've been, I've been invited back. I was invited back right away, but they haven't contacted me since. And so that's okay. But I love those people. I was treated with a lot of hospitality. Uh, even the next day after that, I was called into a meeting of the leadership of that church, and I think maybe some others there, and I told them the same thing, and they all just ate it up. But it's one thing to eat it up at the time. It's another thing to actually change and do something in practice. So it's not just here. It's all over uh, the world. You know, I never end a pastor's conference, no matter where I am. I, I never end a pastor's conference without exhorting the men there to preach the word to their congregations. Pakistan, uh, this, this last March or April, whenever, whenever it was, I had a great opportunity to sit down personally with some of the pastors at the end of it in a hotel room and, and talk to them about preaching the word. You know, something as simple as how do you do it? How, how do you go through a book and preach it? These men, these men are, are so brave. These men are men that any day, it wouldn't shock me at all if I got a, Email from someone else saying, all these guys have been wiped out in the street. These are men that are incredibly brave. They just don't know. That's why we've got to go. We've got to give them the word and preach the word to them and teach them how to teach the word while they're still willing to listen before the country shuts down. I appreciate you very much. I don't tell you enough, but I certainly appreciate you, you participating in those ministries by, by allowing me to go, by sending me, by supporting the the men that I have preach and teach while I'm gone, it's a very, very powerful thing. And these pastors need to know that, that this is what is expected of them. There is no power. I want to say this. You, you listen to me carefully. There is no power in any message. I don't care how famous the preacher is. There is no power in any message apart from its connection to the Word of God. It is the solemn responsibility of anyone who stands before an audience and speaks for God to speak for God. James also spoke about how solemn this responsibility is because he says, Let not many of you become teachers, for as such you shall incur a stricter discipline. If you've been given a platform and you stand before people and say, Thus says the Lord, it better be that's what the Lord said. You start throwing Sigmund Freud and Norman Vincent Peale in there, you're on your own, sport. That's it. The Holy Spirit's not going to work through those. He's not going to work through Norman Vincent Peale or Sigmund Freud. Now, maybe, maybe he can work through some popular means that I'm not thinking of right now, but not through those two guys he's not going to work through. He works through his word. Preach the word. 
one of my favorite phrases in the Word of God, and any time I start wondering and forgetting exactly what it is I'm supposed to do, any time I start getting so wrapped up in where are we going to meet next week, you know, who's going to volunteer to set the chairs up, you know, how are we going to pay a new building, I always go back and I read the pastoral epistles, and it reminds me of where the focus has to be, no matter if we meet in a tent outside somewhere. This is what the focus has got to be. There are so many churches in so many places that meet in cathedrals. One of my favorite things to do in Europe is to see some of the older churches that are there. Incredible churches. But you know what they don't have? Parking lots. (laughs) Do they? They don't, do they? They don't have parking lots. You know why? Because very few people are going to them. They're beautiful edifices. But there's nobody there. And that's sad. That is sad. So, proclaiming the truth must be done as indicated by the four imperatives that follow. First, Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. Now again, preach the word, I think, is the, is the dominant imperative. These next four commands all are related to the first one in some way or another. Be ready in season and out of season. What this tells us is that whether you're welcome or not welcome, Timothy must be ready with a message from God. Now, back, back to my Poland story, man. I shouldn't leave that without telling you. When I, when I got before that congregation and gave my testimony, I, I gave it in a nice way. It, it doesn't do any good to speak the truth in something other than love, especially when you're rebuking the pastor that's right there in front of you, the one that, the one that at least lets you come into his church. And I must tell you that at the end of the, um, end of the session, even though I haven't been back, so I, I don't know how it ended up working out, he was very receptive. He was very humble. And he was more than willing to correct the situation. i got to appreciate that with somebody. But you've got to be ready. You know what I was thinking when I was sitting there waiting to go up that, that last May, I think is when it was? I'm thinking, God didn't send me here. He didn't prepare me for this moment to go and placate these folks or to give them a little ditty so that they would think I'm a real good guy and then invite me back next year to do another little ditty, you know, to tell some little story. He brought me there for that season. Now listen, you've got to be ready in season and out of season as well, don't you? First, you've got to be prepared. You know, C.S. Lewis said you need to practice your theology. You need, to, you need to, he said, rehearse your doctrine. And the reason you need to rehearse your doctrine is because you never know when you're going to need it. Part of what he recommended was, was writing it out and saying it in, in, a, in a form that would be almost creedal so that you would, uh, so that you would recall. But there's going to be times when, you've, when you meet other people and you've got to be ready in season and out of season. The, the most striking example of this for me was when I boarded a plane in, in uh, Hyderabad, India, a few months ago to go to Vijuada, India. And I, I have a problem, I said, my own spiritual problem, I'm sure, with claustrophobia. And it's, it just really, it really gets me. And I hate small planes. And, and uh, um, I'm not a drinking person, but if I had known it was going to be a small plane, I'd have had a drink or two before I got on it. But you never know. You know, you never know till they take you on the bus in some of these other countries. They take you on the bus out onto the runway, and then you get on it. Well, I'm on the bus getting out there, and we pass all these perfectly normal-sized planes. I'm thinking, why are we passing those? And we get to this one that's got a, it's got a seating area that's about as tall as me. You know, I mean, as a matter of fact, it might have been a little shorter. I had to bend down, and I'm thinking, this is not gonna, this is not gonna, I'm starting to get short of breath even thinking about it. This is not gonna work. <laughs> On top of it, I had the aisle seat, and another gentleman had, had the window seat. Well, when I got there, 
he had taken my aisle seat. And I'm thinking, this is even worse, but I, I, always, I was trying to start praying. That's what I do when I get, get into these moments, whether it's stuck on an elevator in Ukraine with a German shepherd and a couple of big guys, that the elevator's no bigger than this, or <laughs> some, whatever it is. I started praying, and, I, and so I sat down by the, by the window, and I I'm, I'm closed my eyes, and I'm praying, and I finally said, okay, this is enough of this. I think I stopped there. I don't think I said anything else. This is enough of this. And I got up, and I, and I got into the aisle. I wasn't meaning to get, give the guy next to me a hard time. I just needed to stand up for a second, you know, and, and calm down, because you can't panic on airplanes. They don't particularly appreciate that. Then the fellow looked at me and said, uh, is everything okay? I said, yeah, I just need to, to get a little air. It's no problem. He spoke very good English. And he said, well, listen, would you like to sit here? I think this is your seat anyway. And he moved over. I sat down, and I started doing better, but, but I still was having a hard time breathing. But I, I wanted to conquer it, you know, through probably the flesh at that point, but I was still trying to pray to conquer it. While I'm doing that, he's making conversation with me. Hey, what you doing? What you doing here? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to Vizuata to do a pastor's conference. And I'm saying this through the heaves of my breath. And he said, really? You know, I'm Hindu. I'm a Hindu, but I date a Christian woman. And I'm really interested in becoming a Christian. And I th- the thing that's going through my mind at the time is what the Lord's sense of humor here. You're talking about being ready in season, out of season. I was no more ready to give him the gospel than the man of I was hoping he would, he would not talk to me. And he's wanting the gospel. So you try giving the gospel to somebody while you're in the middle of a claustrophobic attack, and you'll understand what be ready in season, out of season means. And the Lord blessed it so much that at the end he exchanged email addresses with me. He exchanged regular addresses, his phone number in Vizuata. We called and invited him to the pastor's conference, even though he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't able to show up, but we were able to get him some follow-up help. And, you know, he said he became a believer. I don't know if he did or not. I hope to see him in heaven at some point. But, but I can't read this passage without thinking of that episode you got to be ready just because you're having a bad day or having a headache or you're not in the mood it, that doesn't count you've got to be ready to give the gospel when the opportunity presents itself do you see the point you see also why i say this is this is written to timothy granted and it's written and it's written to pastors granted, but it's written to all of us all of us have to be ready in season and out of season to proclaim the word of god Preach the word, primary imperative, be ready in season and out of season. Second, I would call that a secondary imperative that is describing how the first imperative is to be done. And the next word, reprove. Or could this be, could, could be translated convict. Sin must be brought home to the believers or to the sinners both believer and unbeliever, but I think in this case it's the believer's sin, to their consciousness in order that there may be confession in a turning away from that sin. It's got to be brought to their consciousness. This is what is so strikingly absent in many ministries today. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm not exaggerating, it doesn't give me any pleasure at all to tell you this, but it's absent by design. It's absent by virtue of the ministry philosophy. In too many ministries today, there's a desire, I think, and it's a very fleshly desire on the part of many in ministry, whether it's an elder board or whether it's a pastor himself, to be the biggest. Because there's something that happens to the ego. And you may not even have to be the biggest in your town, but if at least you're bigger than your buddy that you have lunch with all the time. You know, so that, so that while you're eating lunch, you know you got a bigger church than they do. And if that's your model, and, and the model, hey, the model can be justified in this way. 
We want more people to come in so we can give them the gospel. Okay, all right. But you can't compromise the message to do it. And when you compromise the message by design, then God has a problem with that. It doesn't matter if I have a problem with it or not. It doesn't matter if you have a problem. But God's going to have a problem with it if you compromise the message by design. So not only do we need to be ready in season and out of season, but we've got to preach the tough parts, not just the easy parts. We've got to preach the parts that are talking about sin, just like the parts that are talking about prosperity. The next one is, is a challenging one. No pastor I know enjoys this particular aspect of ministry, but it's rebuking. In the process of reproving or convicting the sinner, there are times when a more private, personal rebuke, I don't know that this is talking about the public rebuke so much, but it is part of the proclamation of the word, that a personal rebuke becomes necessary. And again, I don't know anybody that enjoys this part. I certainly don't. But it is a responsibility that cannot be shirked when circumstances dictate that it's necessary. And the, the final call has to reside with the pastor himself. He can take advice from the board. He can take advice from members of the congregation. And I've done that too. I mean, I've, I've received advice. And, and sometimes when you want me to go rebuke, I don't do it. Because I have my own reasons. I have different facts about the situation. I know different things are going on. And other times you don't know anything about somebody's being rebuked. The rebukes are handled privately. Unless it gets to a point where where it's, it's affecting the entire church and there's no repentance and all those things in the Matthew 18 passage. But, but in our church, it hasn't gotten there yet. So I just would make this one plea. Don't make me do that. It, it ruins my day. It ruins your day, too. You know, you, you get yourself right before God, and, um, and we'll both be a lot happier there. Okay. The last one is, is the polar opposite of the previous one. This is my favorite one. And that's exhortation. In spite of the fact that we need to reprove and rebuke, we, we ought not to forget that the demands of love must be fully satisfied when we minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastoral ministry is not to be mean-spirited. And I think that's why Paul concludes with this last one, to exhort or to encourage, because there are times when you've got to, to discipline. But you remember when you disciplined your own kids? You, if you were doing it right, you, you disciplined them, and then you sat down and made sure they knew that you loved them by the time they were finished with the discipline. I can only have to remember uh, having to spank that dear little angel of a daughter of mine once. I think I did it once. It so traumatized me, I was never able to do it again. <laughs> but uh, since she's not here, I can talk about her. She, she definitely disdains when I use her as an example, but she's not here, so she's, it's fair game. But I, I never forget, I, I, I swatted her once. She cried like I had uh, you know, betrayed her. Don't even remember what it's for. And then I sat there and talked to her and talked to her. I kept telling her I loved her and this is for, you know, this is for your good, you know, sweetheart. I just, you know, and went on and on and on. And her eyes were getting heavy. And finally, Cindy came in and said, would you let her go to sleep? She's got, she's got the point. You're torturing her by keeping her awake. So finally I did. I still felt bad about it. But the point is, if you're gonna if you're gonna discipline someone, you can't do it in hatred. You know, if you're gonna rebuke from a pastoral standpoint, if you're gonna rebuke from a parental standpoint, or from a, an employment standpoint, if you're gonna rebuke you, rebuke, you don't do it in hatred. You still got to do that in love, and it's never a bad idea to make sure the people or the individual that you've had to 
to correct strongly with that behavior, realize that you still love them. First, they need to realize God still loves them. You're the one speaking for God. Remember, this whole thing's about you got to do it God's way. And, and I think that's why he puts this one last. The demands of love must be fully satisfied. Hand in hand with, with pertinent rebuke, legitimate rebuke, there must be tender exhortation, and I would call it fatherly admonition. And I'm talking about fatherly in the way that it ought to be done. Now, I'm, I'm very much aware that, well, I'm six to say a handful, but maybe more than a handful of you in here did, did not necessarily experience this in your youth. And that's what's so bad about fathers who don't reflect the love and the character in an imperfect way. As, we, as, as At best, it's imperfect. But when fathers abuse their children, that, that, is, a, that is a crime that the Lord that, that grieves the Holy Spirit, and I think the Lord comes down real hard on because not only does it damage them in, in one physical sense, but it also damages them in a way that they have a skewed view of God the Father. Well, God the Father does discipline, but he still loves you. He, he scourges every child of his that he receives. If he loves you, he will discipline you. So we, we ought not to forget that, whether it's in pastoral ministry or whether it's in, 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 uh, in, in parental ministry. Now, modifying, we had those, we had these five imperatives, preach the word, and then modifying those were be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then finally, we have with great patience, and instruction. Now, the, this phrase modifies, I think, and I don't want to get, I don't want to confuse you too much, but this phrase modifies the last three of the imperatives. Okay. The first, the, the first imperative is the primary one. Preach the word. The next four help explain the first imperative. And now this last phrase with great patience and instruction, that's not an imperative. That's a phrase that modifies how we are to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. Does that make sense? In the same way that when, you're, when you discipline your sweet child and you tell them you love them, you also let them know what they did wrong, don't you? So that they don't do that again. That's the instruction part. Now, briefly, in verses 3 and 4, the reason is now given, showing why Timothy must be diligent in the work that Paul is just describing. He says, for the time will come, when they, meaning the, the congregation at large, will not endure sound doctrine. In every period of history, there will be a season during which men refuse to listen to sound doctrine. In every generation, it appears to be that way. And as history continues on toward its condemna- consummation, then that percentage is going to go up, and it's going to grow worse. While... I've done it tonight. I have noted the spiritual situation of the Christian community at large. I don't want you to be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be consumed with the evaluation of it either. At least that's not what I'm called to do. Some people are. People like Oz Guinness, and I'm I'm thrilled that, that Dr. Guinness is called to do that. He's written some very fine works on it. Other people have too. But I just note it tonight, the spiritual condition of the Christian community, and I don't want you to be surprised by it, nor do I want you to be consumed by it. That's not the point. The point is not for you and me to get our eyes on on what's being done wrong, but to note what's being done wrong and make sure we don't follow that same path. So there, there a time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. That is a reality. 
But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now I want you to think about that phrase for a second. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. In the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's prophecy, it certainly seems as though Yahweh lays, speaking through Jeremiah, lays the blame for what was going on in Israel at the feet of the priest, the priesthood, the ones who were supposed to be teaching the word. Who does he lay the blame on here? Actually, it's the people. Do you see that? So while we may criticize this pastor or that pastor or, or the one down the street, in a sense, it's every bit the fault of the people that are putting up with it. You see the point that he has here? It's every bit their fault because they're wanting to have their ears tickled, meaning just, just tell me something that I want to hear. Tell me more. Tell me more. But it's not what you need to hear. And this is not talking about tickling your ears by speaking the truth in love. This is not speaking the truth if we look at the context of Second Timothy, which is talking about false teachers. So they're going to accumulate for themselves false teachers that just tell them what they want to hear. And will turn away their ears from the truth, in verse 4, and turn aside to myths. They turn away from it. They turn aside from it. Those familiar myths we have had mentioned before in the pastoral epistles, now they come up again. There will always be teachers, and there always have been teachers, who are willing, as Clement of Alexandria, the early church father who wrote in the third century, put it, to scratch and tickle the ears of those who wish to be tickled. That was in the third century. So this is, this is not a problem that's only unique to the end of the church age. Now in verse 5, comparison and contrast that we've had so many times. In, in chapter 3, but they, meaning the false teachers, will not make further progress in, in verse 9. But you in chapter, in verse 10, in verse 13, but evil men. And then in verse 14, you, however. There's this, there's this comparison that keeps going on between the false teachers and what Timothy's responsibility is. And Paul does it again here. As, as compared to those who are wanting to turn, have their ears tickled and turn aside from the truth, Paul says, but you, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, to the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I might say that with a little different inflection, but you be sober in all things, endure, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Not what somebody else is called to do. You can only fulfill yours. The sober person is a calm, steady, and sane person. He's not intoxicated either with alcohol or drugs or with a morbid craving for whatever is sensational or culturally uplifting. He doesn't turn his ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And so Paul tells Timothy he needs to have this kind of attitude, this sober spirit in all matters. Now, sober is not wearing black and, you know, the big, tall Abraham-looking hat with the a beard and walking around like, like you're... Uh, one step away from being in the grave. That's not sober spirit. A sober spirit is a, is a spirit that recognizes the seriousness of the task. doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. doesn't mean you can't be likable or pleasant, but you do recognize the seriousness of the task. That's what it means to be sober in all things. Again, again, here we are with the endure hardship. Once again, he's going to remind Timothy before he dies that there will be suffering associated with this. It doesn't mean somebody's going to drag you out and beat you up. 
It doesn't mean it's going to happen to you what a friend of Cindy or a friend of Cindy and I's acquaintance, a friend of their friend down in Columbia, was taken out from his church in the middle of a service. He was brought out into the front lawn and, and he was executed by the uh, uh, the cartel, the, Med, the Medellin cartel down there, that drug cartel down in Colombia. Uh, that doesn't mean that's going to happen to you. There's other kind of hardships that people can face, uh, some kind of hardships that are not necessarily physical, but there are people whispering behind your back or, or talking about you being irrelevant or you being, my favorite one is when, when people call me lightweight. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I would like to be lighter weight. I'm working on being lighter weight. <laughs> right now I'm still a heavy weight, but... Uh, um, but not a, not a super heavyweight. It's only heavyweight now. But those are, you know, you just got to put up with that and move on, don't you? Because you don't work for them. You work for the Lord Jesus Christ. So be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, this may mean that Paul is saying that, that Timothy's actual spiritual gift is the gift of evangelism as per Ephesians chapter 4. Or this, the way he's using evangelist could be a special way of using the word for what Timothy's doing for Paul there. Remember, Paul is the apostle, Timothy is the apostolic representative. But as the clock is ticking down, we'll have to tackle that one another night. He must be willing, though, to bear whatever God has in store for him. He must not permit anything to stop him. He must preach the gospel, and he must fulfill his ministry, the one that God had given him, to the fullest. Proclaiming the word, being ready in season and out of season, reproving rebuking, encouraging with all patience and instruction.